Well, as you, uh, you all know, we've been uh, this summer taking a break from our study in Matthew, and we've been uh, working on a, a series that we've called Nuts and Bolts, and we, we try to do this in the summers, uh, where we talk about things that we might not otherwise get a chance uh, to talk about. And so this summer, uh, the three pastors, we've been each kind of running on our own track uh, for Nuts and Bolts, and so my track has been uh, the church. Um, if you... Uh, were to invite me somewhere to speak and I get to pick what I talk about, it would probably be the church because I just God has instilled in me a love uh, for the church and hopefully God has instilled in you a love uh, for the church as well. And so we started out, so this, this is the third uh, of four messages on the church today. And so the first message was called The Church Formed. And we talked about how uh, God has been forming a people from the beginning, from the creation of Adam and Eve uh, up until now. Uh, God has been forming a people to call His own. And we uh, gave a definition of the church as this. The church is, first and foremost, people who have been chosen by God and have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and are purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the world. That, that's just kind of a working definition of the church. And then we talked about how the church is organized. The church is like everybody who calls on the name of Christ, everyone who's a Christian uh, is a member of the church. You belong to uh, the global church or the church universal, right? The church is more than the here and now, like there's the, the church that's gone before us, the church that should the Lord tarry will come after us uh, throughout time uh, and throughout the world. And within the church, it's organized under uh, qualified leadership of elders and deacons. And then the church uh, is organized under an intentional gathering. What we do here uh, is intentional and purposeful. And today I want to talk about uh, the church gathered. So to kind of unpack for you just on a real practical level today, um, kind of why we gather and why we do the things that we do, uh, the different components of our service and, and why they matter. And if you've been here for a while, uh, this might not be new to you. If you're new here, uh, this might be helpful for you to understand uh, the purpose behind uh, what we do. There's a DNA uh, of, of the church as a whole, and there's a DNA of, of our local church here, uh, the door uh, in central Oregon. Uh, we know about DNA. I mean, if we just think about just actual DNA for a moment, it's the building block that determines the characteristics of a living thing, and it contains genetic codes uh, for the development and function of all living things. If you think about actual DNA, and then you think about the fact that, that we have a DNA here in our church that, that makes it what it is, uh, it matters. I, re I read this from a, a science publication that DNA is the master molecule of every cell. It contains vital information that gets passed on to each successive generation. It coordinates the making of itself as well as other molecules. If it's changed slightly, serious consequences may result. If it is destroyed beyond repair, the cell dies. So, so DNA in our bodies matter, but DNA in our church matters as well. And, and we don't want to see it changed uh, with detrimental consequences. And so as we think about the fact that we do have a DNA as a church, we, we have something that, that dictates and determines who we are, what we do, and why we gather, um, I want to call our attention to Acts 2.42 to 47. So Pastor Brent talked about this uh, a few weeks back in one of his sermons, and so I'm not going to belabor it today, but it is helpful context as we think about the DNA of our church. And so to give you 
some backstory. Uh, the day of Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit came. Uh, Peter preached a sermon in front of a bunch of people, and thousands of people in a moment came to faith in Christ. And something that didn't exist prior to that moment came into existence, the, the New Testament church. And Acts 2.42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, what, what we don't see in this moment is after Peter preached and these thousands of people instantaneously uh, came to faith, we, we don't see anybody sitting them down and saying, okay, let, let's teach you about what the church is and what the church does. It, it just, this just happened. Because it was part of their DNA in the moment, uh, from the moment they came to faith, this was built into the DNA uh, of the Christian. And they just started doing these things. They had all things in common. They were together. It would seem that outsiders were looking at this kind of new form church and thought, I don't know what's going on over there, but I need to go check it out. And then those people would become day by day a part of this new form church and it just continued to grow. They were generous with one another. If some had extra and some didn't have enough, the some with extra would give to the person that didn't have enough. They, they met needs, right? This, this just was their DNA from the formation of the New Testament church. And so they devoted themselves to these things. They devoted themselves to one another. And this was the DNA. And so I want to unpack just some of, some of the, the practical aspects of the church. And so first and foremost, they, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now this word for fellowship, we, we don't throw a lot of Greek at you here at the door, but this word for fellowship, this is, this is important. It's a Greek word, koinonia. And this is the first instance of the use of this word in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere in the gospel accounts. It, it first makes an appearance here in Acts chapter 2 that they devoted themselves to koinonia. And what's unique about this kind of fellowship is it implies a commonness. And so what we see is when the Spirit was given at Pentecost, this new kind of fellowship that didn't exist before came into existence along with the formation of the church. There was a commonness that, that didn't exist before that came into existence at the birth of the New Testament church that became part of the DNA of the New Testament church. The Christians, these new Christians, mind you, loved and served one another. They gave to one another as they had need. And I don't know if you caught this part, but it said that no one considered their possessions their own. Now, I don't know about you. I've worked hard for what I have. My things are mine, right? My things are mine. Your things are yours. It's just part of our kind of Western, you know, American mindset. But the DNA of this newly formed New Testament church, they didn't consider anything to be their own. They were a selfless people. And so this fellowship that came into existence, this koinonia, this commonness, was something unique to the new formed New Testament church. 
1 John 1, 3 says this, the Apostle John writes, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship or koinonia with us. And indeed, our fellowship or koinonia or commonness is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so just a quick read of that tells us that there's a correlation between having fellowship with the Father and having fellowship with one another. They're connected. They're not separate. You've probably seen on a bumper sticker or maybe have thought to yourself at one time or another, I love God, but His people, not so much, right? We, we, we probably all have that sentiment at one time or another. But our Bible tells us that there's a correlation between fellowship with the Father and fellowship with one another, and it can't be separated. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, that just as the body is one and has many members, all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, and so it is with Christ. One of the unique things about the church, and you've probably heard me say this before, is that it brings together people from all different backgrounds and all different walks of life. Right? If you scan the room, you might look at some people and think, my, my path probably wouldn't cross with them except that we're here together in the church. And our paths may not cross, not necessarily for bad reasons. We just might be in different stages of life or different stations of life with different interests and affinities and things like that. But, but one of the beautiful things about the church is that it brings us all together. And, and it, it allows us to have commonness or koinonia or fellowship with people that we wouldn't otherwise have it with except for our connection to Christ. It's kind of ridiculous to think, and Paul uses this analogy as a body on purpose, it's kind of ridiculous to think that any part of your body could say, you know what, I'm going to separate from the body and I'm going to go do my own thing. Your body can't do that, but even if it could, if, if, if a toe could separate or a finger or an arm could separate, it wouldn't last being disconnected from the body. This is part of our commonness that we have together. Romans 12, 4 to 5 says that as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and, this is going to step on some toes, individually members of one another. Our Bible tells us that, that we belong to each other, that, that you're not autonomous, that the church isn't filled with just a bunch of individuals who have come to Christ. The church is a body. The church has fellowship and commonness with one another by God's good design. And if you're a member of the church, if you're a follower of Christ and a member of the church, then, then we all belong to each other. And there's some implications there that we'll save for another sermon, but we belong to one another. And the New Testament church from the outset was devoted to this idea. And nobody had to tell them that this is what it is. They just were devoted to it. It was packed into the DNA from the beginning, that they were devoted to the fellowship or to koinonia, to commonness. They were devoted to one another. And that's what, something that we endeavor to have here. Part of why we have sharing time, and I'll talk more about this in a moment. And as we think about why we come to church I think it's kind of a, an American Western mentality that, that we come to church often thinking, I hope I get something out of it today. We come to church thinking about how it benefits us. But, but if we look at this idea of 
fellowship, there's, there's a bigger reason. I hope that you get something out of it today and every day that you come. But if we think about the context of being devoted to the fellowship, our mindset ought to be not necessarily, what can I get out of it? How, how can I contribute to it? Right? With my time and with my effort and with my energy and with my talents and with my resources and contribute to one another because of our commonness in Christ. And so I would encourage you to consider as you come to the gatherings of the church to think about not so much what you can get out of it, but what you can give to it and what you can give to others. I would encourage you to think when you come on a Sunday morning to consider how might I encourage somebody today? How might I build somebody up today and edify the church today? That, that, that's a primary concern of our gatherings. Now, we have all these other components of our gatherings. Have you ever thought about what, why is it that we sing in church? Is there, is there any other thing that you're a part of where you sing? Like, it, it's kind of a unique church thing, isn't it? You know, you don't, you don't sing at the Rotary Club. Um, well, I mean, I've never been. I don't think they sing there. But they don't sing at the Kiwanis or, or the Elks. Um, the Car Club, I don't think they start off their gatherings with a song. This is a, kind of a uniquely church thing, Right? Why do we sing? Psalm 150, you might be familiar, but it says this. It says, praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. And praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So our, our Bible tells us, to do that, right? Our Bible tells us in other places that we would sing songs and spiritual songs to one another. That sounds a little weird, but our Bible tells us that. We, we very intentionally have portions of our service where we sing, and, and we very intentionally do some at the beginning and, and do some at the end, and, and it's a purposeful thing on our part. We're very purposeful about the kinds of songs that we sing here at our church, there are a lot of songs out there that could be sung in church, and, and this is kind of a behind-the-scenes thing, so some of you may not be aware, but, but, but we actually curate a list of songs that, that we would say, these, these are the preferred songs that we sing in our church. And it's not, not to be heavy-handed at all. The reason that we do this is that the songs that we sing teach us all theology. The songs that we sing have theological truths. And there are a lot of songs out there, while musically they might be kind of cool, theologically are terrible. There are a lot of songs out there where you could take out the name of Jesus and insert the name of your girlfriend and it would still work. We, we don't like those kinds of songs, right? Those, those are a lot of the songs that you might catch on the radio. We, we don't like those kinds of songs. There are days that, that maybe you come here on a particular morning and, and maybe it's been a rough week. Maybe it's been a rough morning. Maybe you've got something heavy going on. And maybe you're not in a mindset to sing about all the things that you're going to do for God. Right? Maybe you're not feeling it on a particular day. That's okay. It happens to all of us. But you know what's always true, no matter how I'm feeling, is the things that God has done for me. Right? And so if you notice, the songs that we try to sing the most of are, are songs that are truths about who God is and what He's done. Because that's always true, no matter how I feel or no matter what kind of week I've had. Always true. 
And we learn from our songs. We learn theology from our songs that way. And you know what? When I come here and I've had a rough week or a rough day or whatever, that, that centers me. It centers me being reminded of what God has done for me rather than making me feel bad that I'm singing things that are half-truths or maybe not true at all in a moment. It's a unifying thing that we get to do this together, right? It's great if you, on your own, in the shower, in the car, wherever, want to sing whatever songs that you want to sing, but it's a unifying thing that we get to do it together, that we, in, in a unified voice, get to sing truths about who God is and what He's done. Not only does it center me, it centers us right? It centers us. And then we, we sing at the end because after we've centered ourselves on who God is and what He's done for us, after we've sat under the authority of Scripture and listened to the preached Word, then there's a, there's a response to that. And that response is, again, to be reminded about who God is and what He's done for us. And we, again, get to do that together with a unified voice. And so when the Bible talks about singing songs and spiritual songs to one another, think about that. Not necessarily that you're looking somebody in the eye and singing a song to them, that would be kind of weird, but that we get to do it together in unison. We're we're singing first and foremost to God, but, but there is a sense in which we are singing together with one another and to one another truths of the gospel. And so it's very purposeful that we get to do that. We have a sharing time during our service, which we just finished. And, and sometimes when we pastors get up to preach, like sometimes it's, you know, it, we drag things out of you guys and there's you know, two or three of you only have something to share. But days like today, a lot of people have something to say and we feel like we're cutting a thing off when, when, it, when we say, okay, we've we got to get to the next portion of the service. And today was one of those days where it's like, oh, I feel like we're cutting a thing off. I have pastor buddies who I talk to regularly, and um, some of my pastor friends, are they, they come from more liturgical churches where kind of every aspect of, of a service is, is written down and planned out, and you know, there's five minutes for this and three minutes for that and four minutes for that, like every aspect is just really locked down. And, and when I tell them, hey, we have an open mic time at our service, we just pass around the mic and let people say whatever they want to say. <laughs> you do what? And let's be real, sometimes it's weird. Sometimes, sometimes you guys share weird things, but it's okay. <laughs> it, it's cool. It's it's part of the beauty of what we do, right? Sai, si, you stole a little bit of my thunder. Like we, we bear one another's burdens, right? I'm, that's I'm going there, right? And that's part of how we do it: is that we bear one another's burdens by making our burdens at times known to one another. And it's it's a God glorifying thing that we get to do that. Galatians 6, the first three verses say this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. We're commanded in our Bible to bear one another's burdens. And how do we do that if we don't know what they are? Now, we also share things that are not burdensome, like we share praises as well, right? This is a worship service, and it's our, our goal to share things that lead us ultimately to worship God. And so you share things like opportunities to share the gospel, right? Family members safe in an accident, like we praise God for those things, 
but we also bear one another's burdens. And I hope, I hope that when you walk away from here, that, that this isn't the last thought that you've given to what was shared during sharing time. I hope that you think about it throughout the week. I hope that, that we pray for one another throughout the week. I hope that even during the week, you might even reach out to somebody and say, hey, I'm praying for you in this thing. What an encouraging thing that is. Right? And we can walk with one another through the difficulties of life because our Bible tells us to do that. Kind of going back to this idea of like, I love God, but as people, not so much. There's no separation between loving God and loving what God loves. God loves people, right? And so and I, sometimes people are hard to love. I, I get it, right? Some, some more than others at times. I get it. But there's no separation between loving God and loving what God loves. And one of the ways that we love God and one of the ways that we love people is through prayer. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the fact that we pray at all, the fact that we pray at all reminds us that there's something that's beyond my control. The fact that I pray reminds me that there's, there's someone bigger than me and in more control than me and that has better ideas than me. They can fix things that I can't fix. And so when we think about that, like how, how is it that we approach God in prayer? Do we approach God in prayer as if He's a genie in a bottle? If we rub the lamp just the right way, He'll grant our wishes? No, that, that's not what prayer is. If you think about the God of the universe, the God that created all things, the God that orders all things, it's kind of silly that, that any of us would go to him and say, here's my ideas. Yet I do that a lot. And, and I'm pretty convinced a lot of times I have some pretty good ideas for God's suggestion box. But prayer, prayer more than anything is a sign of dependence upon God and, and our worship of God that we would go to him in prayer. Tim Keller, one of the things that he's famous for saying is that the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. We have that kind of king, and we are such children that we can wake up our king at 3 a.m. for something simple as a glass of water. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us to pray without ceasing. And so this is a beautiful thing that we can do in our service as we pray for one another and pray for our needs and, and bear one another's burdens and help shoulder the burdens that we all have. So as weird as it is, it's a beautiful thing and we're going to continue uh, to do it. And, and I hope um, you know, that you would consider even your participation in the sharing time, if nothing else, to, to pray without ceasing for the things that come up. But also, uh, especially if you're one that's maybe a little more introverted and, and not comfortable in a crowd, that's okay. But, but consider that, that God has built into your life a system of people to bear your burdens with you. And that there's a time in our service dedicated uh, for that and dedicated to share the good things that we want to acknowledge God's goodness for in our lives. Another aspect of our services that we do uh, on occasion, um, our baptism and communion, the sacraments. And so we, we practice baptisms as, as the needs arise, usually a couple of times a year, uh, as people come to faith, as people who maybe have been Christians for a while and just never were baptized. Uh, and we practice communion once a month. And we do both of these things 
typically with the gathered church. If you notice, um, you know, we're probably not taking communion just in our homes with our families, right? We're not you know, doing private baptisms in, in somebody's bathtub, typically. There are circumstances maybe where those things are allowed for, but we typically practice the sacraments as, as the gathered church because, again, it, it's a unifying thing that we can do together. It's a thing that we can do together to make much of Christ. And our approach to the sacraments is not that these are things that we do for God, but they're reminders of what God in Christ has done for us. Christ for us as we celebrate communion. Christ for us as we celebrate baptism. And we we focus on His work, not ours, in these things. The beautiful part uh, of our service that doesn't happen every week, but, but happens again, communion on a monthly basis, baptism kind of as, as needed. We're very intentional in our services and our approach to preaching as well. Acts chapter 2, the passage that we read says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but a literal translation would say that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So not a once and a done type of a thing, but a regular thing that happened continually over and over and over and over. And so that begs the question, what is it that the apostles taught? Well, they taught Christ. They taught Christ and they taught him crucified according to the apostle Paul. And so we have a value here at the door of expositional preaching, and that might be a big word, maybe something that you're not familiar with. In a minute, I'll talk about what is expositional preaching, but here's a few things that are not expositional preaching that often are maybe considered expositional preaching. So sometimes you'll hear people refer to expositional preaching as just being sequential, that that we teach book, chapter, and verse through the Bible, right? And and we we try to do that here, not not necessarily from, from the beginning to the end, but we'll teach through books, maybe jump around from book to book, but we try to teach through books from beginning to end. In and of itself, that's not necessarily expositional preaching. Uh, running commentary sometimes is considered expositional preaching, where uh, you might hear a pastor say, okay, here's verse 1, and this is what it means, and here's verse 2, and this is what it means, and here's verse 3. Okay, that's, that's, not, that's just running commentary. And I'm not saying any of these things are necessarily bad, just that they're not expositional preaching. Uh, oftentimes, you'll hear somebody talk about uh, making observations of a text as expositional preaching. And again, not, not, not a bad thing, but, but not expositional preaching. Some people might consider expositional preaching as inspirational preaching. Um, I've been in church services where you'll see a pastor say, you know what, I woke up this morning and I'm just going to chuck my notes today and we're just going to go with the Spirit. Not expositional preaching. Uh, proof texting is also not expositional preaching. Uh, I remember as a young pastor, one of the pieces of advice I was giving is that whenever you make a point, just make sure you have three verses to back it up. Okay, maybe not a bad way to go, but not expositional preaching. There's a difference between a couple big words here, but eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis is where I would say, I have this idea. I want to teach a class on how to be a better dad. And then I'll go to Scripture and I'll find you know, all the Scriptures I can about you know, what it is to be a dad. Right? And I kind of bring my idea into the Scripture and kind of use Scripture to back up my idea. Not expositional preaching. 
exegesis or to exegete the word is where we come to the word and we say, what does the word say? And that's what we're going to preach, what the word says. Expositional preaching is simply exposing what the word says to you. And that, that's our goal as your pastors every week is that we would expose to you not our own ideas, not our own thoughts, but we would expose to you the thoughts and the ideas that are found in the word of God. David Helm, in his book on expositional preaching, says this, It's an endeavor to bring out of scriptures what is there, to never thrust into a text what the Holy Spirit did not put there, and to do so from a particular text in ways that rightly humble the listener, exalt the Savior, and promote holiness in the lives of those present. That's expositional preaching, and that's what we value here. If we go back to, to my first sermon on the church about how the church was formed, do you remember how the church was formed? By God's Word. Right? God's Word. And we see in Acts chapter 2 that they devoted themselves continually to the apostles' teaching, which was the teaching of God's Word. And so God's Word formed the church back then. God's Word continues to form the church today. We believe that. We believe that with all of our hearts. The first thing that the early church was devoted to was the Word of God. Colossians three sixteen and 17 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That, that's the thing that centers us. God's Word. It's why we sing God's Word. It's why we preach God's Word. It's why our fellowship is based on God's Word. Because it's the thing that unifies and centers us. And it's worth thinking about that, that all of that, you know, again, kind of asking the big question, okay, why? All of that, like, we, we gather here, yes, to be centered, to be reminded, to be taught, God's word, but, but that also leads to something, right? I think a lot of kind of Western American Christians kind of stop at the intake, right? The, the consuming uh, of God's word, and it's good to consume God's word. It's good to take it in, but also there, there's, a, there's a component of, of the outlet of God's word, right? If all we're ever doing is, is consuming and taking in, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing, and so if our gathering doesn't lead to our intentional scattering, we've missed something about the gospel. Let me say that again. If our gathering doesn't lead to our intentional scattering, we've missed something about the nature of the gospel. We, we come here and we, we consume and we, we take in, we take in fellowship and we take in the word, but that ought to rightly and intentionally lead us to going out there and, and having an output of God's word to those around us. There's a quote that I read years ago, and I didn't think to write down who it was. Important thing for today is this is not me, this is somebody else. But whoever said this says, what happens in the church where the spirit reigns? There's a radically wonderful reorientation of essential relationships. Where the spirit reigns, believers relate to the word. They relate to teaching, they take it in and they, and they put it out. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to one another in 
commonness in koinonia. Now, where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to God in right worship. And all of those things ought to give us love and compassion for those who aren't experiencing those things yet. Pastor David's track, he's talking about evangelism, so I won't belabor this today either because you'll get more uh, from him in a couple of weeks on that. But again, if our gathering doesn't lead to an intentional scattering, we've missed something about the nature of the gospel. So I would ask you to consider in closing, to consider your, your participation in the fellowship, your participation not, not just as a consumer, but as a contributor in some way, a contributor to the good of others, to the glory of God, and, and that you would consider how that leads you to act out there, right? When you go to work, when you go home, when you go to the store, when you go to the park, when you go camping, whatever it is that you do that, uh, like was mentioned this morning, that you would pray intentionally for opportunities, even if it scares you to death, that you would pray for opportunities to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you belong to the church, you belong to, to the greatest institution ever, you belong to an institution that will not fail even in all of its flaws. I'll talk more about that next time. You belong to it. You get to be a part of it. And it's a privilege to do so. It's a privilege to be known by God. It's a privilege to be under God's grace and under God's mercy. And the church exists, at least in part, for those who have yet to be a part of it. And the way that people become a part of it who aren't yet a part of it is because people like us go out and bring them in. That, that's God's design, not just a good idea. That, that's God's plan. That's the plan for the growth of the church. And so consider how you might contribute uh, to all of that, and, and I hope that you're encouraged with the church today. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning. We're grateful that you love us. We're grateful for the lengths to which you went to call us into the fold here. We're thankful uh, that even in our flaws that you put up with us, that you contend with us, that you continue to be gracious and merciful to us. We're grateful that you uh, have given us the church, that you've given us a place in the church to where uh, we can help bear one another's burdens and we can uh, contribute to, to one another's lives, that we can uh, remind one another about the glories of Christ. And so I would pray uh, today that you would help us to consider uh, all of the things that we talked about, that we would consider our contributions to the church, that we would consider our participation in it, that we would consider uh, how you might use those of us that would have been saved uh, to go out into the world um, to spread the good news to others about how they can come to know you as well. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.